With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Professional wrestling, like real life, is full of surprises. Hi, everyone. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. And it's no surprise I can talk wrestling all day, any day. Kind of like how State Farm agents can talk insurance and help you choose the right coverage. When it comes to important insurance decisions, let State Farm support you with the coverage you need backed with 24-7 support. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Morenita, a deep dive into the Latinx experience. With Morenita, we want to create a community and a shared space with you while sharing knowledge and inspiration. This show is about celebrating our culture with guests who exemplify the best of us. I'm Darlene Castillo, y te invito. Today on Morenita, I welcome Eliana Pipes. Eliana is the fantastic writer behind Dreamhouse, a play that I recently had the chance to debut in Atlanta. I want to have Eliana on to discuss her works, the inspiration for her plays, and how she keeps evolving her writing. Eliana is a force, and I'm so glad to have her on the show. Hello, Eliana Pipes, and welcome to Morenita. We are so happy to have you here. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I feel like I just saw you because I did just see you. <laughs> um, and it also feels like it was a thousand years ago. I can't believe that was last week. Can you believe that? So just, I'm going to let, I'm going to let you kind of like give the people the good, good of what we're talking about. Um, I have the absolute <laughs> pleasure and honor to um, currently be starring in one of Eliana Pipe's uh, plays called Dreamhouse out here in um, Atlanta, our first stop, the Alliance Theater. Um, Eliana is an incredible playwright, and um, I'm going to let you talk about your stuff for a little bit here. What's Dreamhouse? Oh, Who am I? That- <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? Who am I? Um, well, thank you so much for that warm introduction. And first and foremost, it is our absolute honor to have you starring in the play. Dreamhouse is a play about two Latina sisters who inherit a home in a gentrifying neighborhood, and they decide to sell it on an HGTV-style reality home show. And the show gets wild. It goes in a lot of different directions. It the play is, as a whole takes sort of a surreal twist. And it's really about these two sisters asking if they're going to sell this house, if they're going to sell their culture, and what the cultural cost of progress is. Do they have to sell out to cash it? And in the play, should we talk about you and your character? I just want to come and talk about you on your podcast on this oh day. Oh, my goodness. Um, I mean, yeah, but it's, Daryl, a great, it's a great role. Daryl is playing the wonderful. <laughs> I mean, I'm, and like, we're, it's, I feel like it's changed so much 
with you in it or, you know, become so much more clear. Mm. Darylin is playing the younger sister, Julia. She is six months pregnant. She hasn't been back to her hometown, back in the house for a long time. And she's sort of rediscovering her connection to her culture and preparation for motherhood and rediscovering her commitment to this house. And then a whole bunch of stuff happens that I won't spoil. The, the thing I will spoil is that Daryl is incredible in the play. So this amazing play, Dreamhouse, is um, partnering with these three theaters in producing the world premiere of the show. How did the show, how did the play Dreamhouse come to this opportunity? Yeah, the play is having a triple co-production world premiere with the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, Connecticut, and Baltimore Center Stage in Baltimore, Maryland, which is incredible. It's, it's a real, it's a real honor and one that I don't take lightly for a new play to have such a wide reach on its first swing. Um, (laughs) the way that it happened is that the play won the Alliance Candida national graduate playwrights competition. I always forget all the words in the acronym. (laughs) Um, but the Candida prize is a wonderful initiative that was started by the Alliance, I believe 19 years ago. I think this was the 19th winner and it's a playwriting competition for people who are in their third year of an MFA playwriting program. Mm -hmm. So a really interesting kind of narrow pool. Um, And the prize that comes with the, the, the sort of like prize for winning the competition is getting a full production of the play at the Alliance, which is incredible because there are so many competitions out there where the prize is like a staged reading Mm -hmm. or like a little stipend, but to have the prize actually be an investment in a full production is is really unique and hard to find. Um, and of course, you know, no shade to all the theaters offering readings. They're amazing. Thank you for the <laughs> readings. But but it is a really, it's a really interesting model. Um, and so the play won that Alliance Candida competition. And then Long Wharf Theater had been developing the play through their New Works Festival. It had a reading at the end of 2020, uh, which actually our wonderful Jacqueline Correa was in. And then Baltimore Center Stage, the artistic director, Stephanie Ibarra, was on the reading committee for the Alliance. So once the Alliance chose it for production and those other two theaters got wind of it, they decided to jump in as well. Mm. Um, Yes, and Jacqueline uh, Correa um, is the uh, other actress who plays my sister called Patricia. Um, And I mean, the, the feedback for the show so far has just been like incredible. It's we both keep saying the word incredible like over and over again, but that's, <laughs> that's like, that is the best like word to describe your show. It is just, um, there's so much that is spoken, um, of the Latin experience of with gentrification and, um, the difficulties of sisterhood and the beautiful things with sisterhood and what comes out of that. Um, and I think, the amazing thing that you've done is uh, with these two, well, these three characters, there is a third character, um, the host of the HGTV show um, called Flip It and List It, um, Tessa, who's played by Mariana, um, another incredible actress. Um, it's this interesting balance of these three women, this this relationship that they all are having with each other on this TV show and, um, the challenging of the challenging things that come up to come up to the surface. Um, something that's always, I think catches people's, um, eye about the play and ears is, um, something 
specifically um, that happens for the character Patricia um, and something that is connected to you personally that came out of this play. But um, I always enjoy, I always enjoy, sorry, this is a little bit of a run on, but I always enjoy hearing you talk about this because um, I'm curious about your, your journey as a playwright and the stories that you share um, in the play, Patricia is challenging with, I'll just put it bluntly, but selling her soul, right? Selling her, selling her truth. Um, and, 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 um, I'm curious what that is for you personally. I know that you've spoken about this in some of your, uh, storytelling that you've done and feeling like, I'll let you kind of dive in and let the people let mm-hmm. you, let you explain that a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. I think this play, um, to sort of start from the top, this play came from two sort of central inspirations for me. The first one was reflecting on the way that my hometown was changing when I was growing up. I grew up in this little pocket of Los Angeles that was really transforming when I was a little kid due to arts-led gentrification. And on one hand, the arts-led gentrification meant arts programs in my town. And a lot of those theaters and nonprofit programs reached out to my underserved elementary schools. And I got to experience the arts from a really young age in a really immersive way. But also those new theaters were sparking a wave of arts-led gentrification that was also transforming my neighborhood. Mm. Little shops closed and became bars for people to go to after shows. And it made the neighborhood appealing to a different kind of buyer. And then when my fam, when I was 13 and my family sold our house, we moved. And so we sort of participated in that gentrification. We profited. We, you know, our, our little cookie cutter house tripled in value. So why wouldn't we sell? Mm-hmm. But leaving that neighborhood, on one hand, we, you know, we had financial resources that we didn't have before. It, it, it changed the course of my family's financial future. That's, I mean, it, it started a chain reaction that has led to my parents being able to retire today. And we're not rolling in it by any means, but but it it really marked a turning point in what was possible for my family. And also leaving that neighborhood meant a cultural loss that I didn't understand at the time as a 13-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was changing school districts. I found myself in a very white environment and I felt a whole new set of sensations around what it felt to what, around what it felt like to be in a space that was mine or that wasn't mine. And so like that big, weird, complicity mess it was one piece of the puzzle. And then the other half of the inspiration behind the play was moving more deeply into the world of professional playwriting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been interested in writing since I was a little kid. I started writing truly in the fourth grade, thanks to one of those nonprofit programs called Young Storytellers, which I love dearly. And I currently sit on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, but I sort of kept writing through high school. I was like doing these like young playwrights programs all through high school and early college. And this was the first play that I wrote in graduate school because by the time I'd landed in grad school, you know, I'm black, white, and Puerto Rican. My mother is black and Puerto Rican. My dad's white. And I typically tend to write black and Latina protagonists. I'm really close with my mom. We're hella tight. (laughs) And so like we... So basically when I was writing, when I was writing stories from those lenses or stories about that part of my family, you know, writing Black and Latina characters when very often those communities aren't present in the audience, 
I started to feel like I was being asked to sell my cultural pain for money. And I wanted the money and I wanted the recognition and I wanted to be in those spaces. I wanted my work to be seen at those prestigious white theaters and, and, and dealing with what it meant to want to be in those spaces and the sacrifices that I made for my ambition and the harm that I put, the, the sort of harm's way that I was willing to put myself in to be in those spaces. It's not unique to the theater by any means that ambition has that kind of cost. Um, but I think, you know, specifically thinking about what gaze my work would be subject to um, really, really drove a lot behind the play. And yeah, I think that <laughs> it's so hard to talk about that scene without spoiling know, things, I but I think that scene especially. <laughs> yeah, everybody's like, what scene? <laughs> I know, you'll have to come see the play. you have to come out and support it. I think we all battle with that. <laughs> There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I want to say um, something, and I know the listeners, this is, we're listening and we're not seeing here on the podcast, but... Um, you guys made a very conscious decision 
to hire me <laughs> and um, hire, you know, Jacqueline Correa, who's um, compared to myself as a lighter skinned Latina. Um, tell me about that process, about the casting process. Mm-hmm. Um, I will be, mm-hmm. I think I remember my callback. I, I thank you guys for even calling me in because I mean, I wrote it inside the playbill of the show. Um, we, we had an opportunity, the actors to write a, um, a little section about what it means, what dream house meant to us. And something that I really wanted to highlight was that I being an Afro Latina have never played a Latina role, which is insane. Um, and this is the first time that I've ever been cast as a Latina to play a Latina, to be myself. Um, so I remember Mm. after my call back, you know, I thank you guys for even calling me in the room and giving me the opportunity to, I don't know, just be myself and, um, and, Mm. and lead with that. And I'm curious because it's something, it's something that our audience is aware of. Um, one of our talkbacks, an audience member, you know, they applauded the fact that you guys cast the show in the way you did. So I'm just curious what, what what happened behind the table and all of that. The casting process was a wild ride, mostly just because (laughs) it's a big, hefty contract. Like it's, it's a, we, you know, time is never anyone's friend. Mm -hmm. I think we ended up with less time than we had hoped for. Um, but when it came to approaching conversations around casting, I was always clear and Lori, our director was always really clear about wanting to prioritize Afro Latinas, mostly because like that, that is my experience. Like, like Mm. the Latinas in my family are black. Like it's, it's, it was for me just part of honoring like the actual impetus behind the play. Mm. Um, and also I think we wanted to be aware that like this place going to Atlanta, Georgia, this place going (laughs) to Baltimore, Maryland. Like we have, you know, like if we want our play to speak to communities that don't often get represented in the theater, like the intersection of blackness and Latinidad is a huge part of that. And, and so like, we always, always, always were like hoping for and aiming to prioritize having Afro Latinas in the cast. And it was interesting the way that that was received institutionally. Obviously there was a lot of support, but there were interesting conversations about like, well, you know, should we say Afro Latinas only, or will that change the pool too much? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, what if we end up with two people that don't look the same? Is that a catastrophe? And like, no. (laughs) Um, We ended up having lots of conversations, a lot, a lot, a lot of conversations. One thing that I do appreciate about the team is, is the real willingness to have rigorous conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, We, we sure talked, we sure talked a million years about all these different possibilities and what they would mean. Um, But ultimately what it came down to was just that we fell in love with you and then we fell in love with Jack (laughs) and it just seemed like there was no other way to go. Um, and in our final rounds, we did actually have, because we had such an intentional emphasis on finding Afro-Latina actors, we did have a pretty full slate of Afro-Latinas in our top groups. Um, but Jack was just so good. We had to say yes. <laughs> um, I love that. There are productions that are like, cool, let's bring the Afro-Latina as like the narrator or like the, the story, like this, the the token, you know, and to not, to not have to like lean into that, to be able to be like my own storyteller and have a connection to the story as the identity of the show. Like, it's just so it's, 
life-changing. It's really been so inspiring and um, just just an incredible piece of work. Um, and something that- And I also yeah. want to say, sorry. No, please. I just, people have come up, like truly in talkbacks, people have come up to me and told me how much it means to see you in this play. Mm. Like it's landing for our audiences as well. And that's something that I really, I mean, like the simple truth is just like, you were the, you were the strongest choice possible. Like, like we chose you because you were the best person and the downstream benefits of the fact that like, it, it really is landing with our audience differently to see, to see a Latina that they don't typically get to see on stage. Like it's, it's really, really hitting people. You've really created a masterpiece. I, re I really hope that this, after the, the, the three stops of the show, um, I hope it continues and continues to blossom and grow. Um, let's, I want to talk about, I know that you mentioned um, your younger childhood of, you've always wanted to be a playwright. This has always been your dream. Um, is that something that was always supported by your family, by your mother, you know, by, by growing up it is how did little Eliana pipes begin? <laughs> <laughs> I have been really, really, really lucky to have been supported by my parents as wholeheartedly and as genuinely as I have been. My parents are both creatives or both sort of like literary people. I am the child of two English majors and my parents actually met in a book club. Oh my God. <laughs> and so they're like big readers, big appreciators of the arts. And my first word was book. My father worked in a bookstore for 25 years. Mm -hmm. He was the manager at the Bodhi Tree in Los Angeles. Um, and so it was a household full of reading and writing. It was a household full of sort of like arts and culture. We're a kind of household where like we watch a movie and then after the movie is over, we spend 45 minutes discussing the movie and the <laughs> themes and the symbolism and moments that stayed with us. It's like, we're nightmares. It's like really, it's, it's, it's no fun for anyone but us. Um, but like, thankfully my parents from the very beginning were very, very, very encouraging of me writing. Um, and at first I was just like, I would write really intense like school essays and I would get a notebook and like scribble it full of a story that was like nine chapters and it was a Halloween haunted thing <laughs> and I would draw my own illustrations I was just really like overloaded and and excited about storytelling in any way that I could um and they just really were on my side and they encouraged me even when the writing was bad. It was mostly bad, but they were happy that I was trying. <laughs> and yeah, you know, my mother is, is, is a poet. Um, she's never been able to work professionally, uh, but it's, you know, she is the soul of a poet. She has the heart of a poet. She has the poetry of a poet. I'm pointing over at her little chat book, which sits on my library desk to remind me always of her writing and the writing that I come from. And she's been such a sort of like thought partner on everything that I do and credit to mama, the dollar sign S in dream house. That was her idea. I love that. And I love like throughout our process, you'll be like, yeah, my mom helped me write that part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, she, she really does. She reads every draft and like, there are some things where <laughs> it's really sweet. We've worked out a like pretty intricate system of boundaries because it's also <laughs> like 
she's my mom, right? So she's the most important person in the world to me. So when she makes a comment, it lands heavily. And so I'm like, mama, okay, during business hours, I can receive communication in this way. After business hours, I would like an email in the subject line of the email. Let me know that it's a work Mm -hmm, email. Like mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. we've found all these ways to sort of communicate so that I can keep myself safe. But like, there's a section in the play where Patricia, who's an accountant, talks about how she would break down the money that they would win from the game show. And I just literally sat down with my mom and I was like, okay, mama, we have a million dollars. What are we doing with mm. it? And the character is like, we're going to break it into units, 10 units of $100,000 each. That is exactly how my mom mm. works. Like a lot of my mom is in this play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's just, I mean, it's, I mean, my mom and I are the same. It's a testament to, to, to <laughs> relationships of of our culture and, and, and the women in it. And, um, and, and the one thing I love is that it, there's no boundary of the show culturally. Like, I mean, you have, I remember after the show at our Q and a, like we, I had this, um, this white woman who came up to me and she was like, I am Patricia and I am Julia. And I was like, wow. (laughs) And she just was like, just because, you know, you guys are Latin ex-sisters, like this story speaks so deeply for women. And I think that's also something to highlight about this play. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, gentlemen, y'all are not in this one, okay? This one's for the <laughs> ladies. Um, but you but you made this it- This one is for the ladies. You made, you made a point to not include um, the male gaze. Let's just call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want to know more about mm-hmm. that. What is that for you? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that that person came up to you and said like, I am Julia and I am Patricia. And I think that a lot of people are like, I don't have a sister. It's a play about sisterhood and I don't have a sister, but a lot of this play is about like the conversations that I have with myself and the conversations I have with my mother and the conversations I have with my best friend. And so I do think that almost everyone is both a Juliana and a Patricia, depending on who else is in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I love that she said that. And I also do think that my hope and my aim has always been to tell universal stories through a culturally specific lens. So I'm thrilled. (laughs) I'm thrilled that that white audience member felt seen because I also know that the black and Latino audience members felt seen as well. But like knowing that, knowing that she felt that way makes me happy. I'm glad that people are feeling those resonances and getting to feel resonance with a character that they typically don't get to. Um, And then as for the men, (laughs) it's interesting. It like, it did not occur to me. Or like, I guess I knew that I had written an all-female play. It was, of course, a conscious choice. But as it's been sort of moving through the festival circuit, people ask about that a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, it's come up at every single talkback I've done. People are really like, where are the dudes at? Um, I think that part of my interest in telling the story the way that I did with three women is that very often, at its core, I think that this story is about colonialism, about colonization. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to say my work is about internalized oppression, the narratives that we take on from other people and then internalize as part of our being, and then how that reflects the way that we move through the world. But I think just another word for that is colonization. Mm -hmm. Like it, it encompasses, I think, more accurately what the play is really talking about. And I think very often we see stories of colonization told as stories of men with guns fighting about land. And I was really interested in telling that story as women with culture fighting about money Mm. or women with money fighting about culture. Like, I I think that, I mean, first of all, historically, 
so much of colonization has always centered on women. Women have always been a part of the story of colonization, mm-hmm. just not the story that's told. It's always like Zapata and, and <laughs> you know, we get icons and paintings and boleros and like, but, but women have always been on the front lines of all of it because women are holders of culture and arbiters of culture in so many ways, like literal and, and symbolic and, like statistically women are more likely to hold on to their ethnic identification than men, a whole bunch of stuff. But I was really interested in centering women in a story about colonization. And also, especially because it's a story about the mm-hmm. home, like so many things about it, it, it felt right to me. Um, and I also just think that, you know, there are plenty of plays for men. <laughs> They'll be fine. They'll be fine. They'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> They'll make it. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. What's next? (laughs) I know, I know. Um, I'm just curious, like, what are the stories that are, you know, after Dreamhouse and of course, Dreamhouse hopefully will continue to have um, an impact and grow and such. But what are stories that are now speaking to you Mm -hmm. now that you're unpacking Dreamhouse and, you know, now you're hearing the feedback and now you're like, what is, what is the next story that you are eager to share and tell. You don't have to go too deeply and mm-hmm. whatever you can share, but 
just curious what's on your mind nowadays. Mm, yeah. Oh gosh. Uh, I've been working on a couple of film and TV projects that are like sadly things I can't share about, <laughs> but in the play world, I wrote a play about Lorena Bobbitt, um, mm. who you may or may I not don't. know. Do I you don't. know Lorena Bobbitt? I don't know who does. Tell okay. us. So Lorena Bobbitt became a tabloid sensation in 1993 when she cut off her husband's penis <gasps> with a kitchen oh, wait, knife and hear, threw it out her I car did window. Hear about this. Yes. Okay. It only came out after the fact that he was incredibly abusive and her trial became a flashpoint for so many cultural issues in America, but mostly domestic mm. violence and and rape survivors and and so like it was it was a huge, huge complex case. She was an immigrant. There were there were a lot of layers, but essentially she became a piece of media spectacle. Mm. There were late night specials laughing at her like it, it, it she became a punchline after after surviving such a horrifying experience. Mm. But the only takeaway that America took for was the punchline about her husband's dick. It was like the dick was the end of the world. <laughs> but the horrifying treatment that she faced in that marriage for years and years and years was brushed aside. Mm. Wild. Um I'm really interested and invested in spectacle as a playwright. There's a lot of spectacle in Dreamhouse. Um, and this play kind of takes takes the spectacle of Dreamhouse and like dials it up to 11. It's a vignette play. Things are nuts. The play starts with a purple dildo dropping from the sky. There's a chariot and there's like a chorus of Greek millennials on their phones. And there's like the penis has a monologue. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but it's it's a play that's really invested in sort of like getting to the bottom of the way that the media makes spectacle out of suffering, mm. how the play itself is complicit in that, and then sort of like stripping down to the bare human truth underneath all of the satire. That was such a tricky job of explaining <laughs> that. But that's the play that I'm working on. And then the other piece that I've been digging into lately is that I, over the course of the pandemic, made an animated short film, <sighs> which is not something I ever thought I would what? do. <laughs> uh, it was wild. In January 2020, I won the WAVE grant, granted through Wavelength Productions. It's a grant for a first-time female or non-binary filmmaker of color to produce a short film. It's like seed funding to help with the production of a short mm. film. Um, it was supposed to be a live-action short film, but... I won, basically I did three months of intensive pre-production planning on shooting in person in Boston and then the pandemic hit mm. and it was clear that we weren't going to be able to film the way that we had hoped. And so it looked like we were going to have to scrap the project altogether. And I was so, so sad. And then a brilliant suggestion, a brilliant suggestion came from a mentor to turn the project into an animation and I just decided to go for it. I have no experience in animation. I had never even drawn a frame in my life. I would not <laughs> sketch a doodle if you had asked me to, but I decided I just didn't want to let the project die. It was looking back really a sort of like wild pandemic brain 
manic commitment. Like I, I did not understand how much I was taking on at the yeah. beginning, but I partnered with a storyboard artist who is a wonderful friend from high school. I storyboarded 340 frames of an animation. Wow. We found an animation team. We hired a group of 12 animators, background artists, composers, sound designers, put the team together and we wrapped in September. It's a really sweet, heartfelt queer story. It's about an Afro-Latina who is preparing for her quinceanera and she develops a crush on another girl in her quince court that makes her fingernails grow at a superhuman pace, which is on one hand fabulous Mm -hmm. because long nails are such a huge part of Black and Latina beauty culture. But on the other hand, it is an absolute catastrophe because short nails are a huge part of queer culture for Mm. women. And so she's basically stuck with these like monster three feet long nails that that put a physical obstacle between her and her crush. They make her feel like a monster. This thing that used to feel like her superpower all of a sudden feels like a curse. Uh, and it's just about navigating that intersection between Latinidad and queerness, between Black, Black and Latina beauty culture and beauty standards, and the sometimes white assumptions that come with the queer community, especially mainstream queer culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But we have a happy ending. Culture (laughs) wins and love wins too. And she gets, and you know, the quince ends happily. I love this. So see men, you guys will have your play. A big purple dildo. (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy, enjoy John Bobbitt, the one man in my play writing universe. (laughs) And then I love that like you, I mean, if there's any other writers who are listening, um, or people that want to, you know, write a play or, or, or even like, you know, apply for any of these, I mean, grants or like, there's, there's so many, there's so many opportunities that I think that you have like mm-hmm. taken and you've jumped on. And that's always like the first step, right? Just like write and write. But like, is there any mm-hmm. advice that you would give a fellow, um, young writer out there or somebody who wants to jump into that deep end oh. as you've been doing and, and all of these incredible, like, like ideas that you have and like, you're just going for it. And I love that. That's what I love about your work. It's fearless and it's direct mm. and it's clear and yeah. And it's kind of quirky and kind of weird, but you're like, I get it. And yes, I feel, I feel <laughs> her. I feel the weirdness and I, and I, and I, and it's so powerful. So like, is there anything that you would like to like, kind of give a little couple words for people that might want to follow what you're doing? Mm, I so appreciate that. Oh my gosh. Fearless and weird is all I've ever dreamed of being. I think I think that writing is at its core an invitation to develop and discover your voice. Mm-hmm. And so I think I spent a long time trying to sound like other people or trying to sound like other writers and things really unlocked for me when I just invested in trying to sound like myself and then trying to rediscover what sounding like myself would even sound like. And then saying, what is this self anyway? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I think that the very, I, I, I've been lately, especially trying to think about writing to please myself first. We think so often about the audience or in the context of applying to things about the judges or adjudicators, is this going to make them laugh? Does it make you Mm. laugh? You know, is is this going to land with an audience? Does it land with you? I think very often the best and first litmus test is, 
You know, is this piece doing something to me? Is it asking me new questions? Is it challenging me? Is it making space for me? Is it making me feel seen? Um, and it used to feel really selfish to me to focus on it in, on, in that sort of narrow of a lens, to focus on myself in that narrow of a lens. But I found that the things that hit me the hardest tend to be the things that hit the audience the mm -hmm. hardest. And the more that I feel that I'm being sort of like raw and close to my experience, the more that I get reflected feedback from other people who encounter it that they are feeling seen. Um, and there will always be things to challenge. I'm so grateful that Dreamhouse has had such a long festival run because it's given me the opportunity to expand the play to hit other perspectives that I didn't that I didn't inherently have or inherently hold. This very last production, I learned so many things that that just because of who I am and how I grew up weren't clear to me or evident to me from the start. But you can make the play more inclusive and more experiences as you go. Mm -hmm. The thing that I love about writing is that it's the part of the creative process that nobody has to give you permission to do. Mm -hmm. If you're an actor, you're waiting for a part. If you're a director, you're waiting for someone to bring you a project or to bring you some funding, but nobody can stop you from sitting down and writing. And I think that's really powerful because everything starts with a script. Everything starts with the play. Um, I think it's so great to apply to every opportunity you can and also to know that rejection is not a reflection on you. Mm -hmm. um, I've mostly come up through play writing competitions and for the wins, for the stack of wins that I have, I cannot tell you how long the stack of no's is. Nobody posts about their rejection letters, but know that everybody's getting them and that it shouldn't be discouraging and that contests are not a gauge of worth in either direction. Yeah. Nobody knows the, yeah. nobody knows the struggles of all the no's and all that, but you know, it, yeah. The, when you get those yeses, I mean, then you have a three world premiere. <laughs> of an incredible play such as yours. It's true. Eliana, the one thing I love about your work that I also want to say, and I want to, I, I keep like <laughs> loving on you because I'm just like, it's, it's so good, but it's, um, you have this gift of, um, of highlighting true, real, honest experiences, but you highlight them, even the painful ones, you somehow highlight it with joy. And that is not easy. <laughs> that is not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, you find yourself laughing through these really dark <laughs> play, these dark experiences. And I think that that is just, it's, it's a gift and you, you definitely, you definitely have that gift. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you for sharing it with all of us. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. So there is a question that we always ask our lovely guest here at Morenita. And I'm curious what your answer is. Um, what is the one thing that makes you feel like home or defines home? Hmm. <gasps> That's such a beautiful question. Wow. Oh, man. My head is spinning. I think my mom, honestly, just like the, the answer that jumps to mind is my mom. And not even like having my literal mom with me, but like, a presence and a feeling of my mom. I live in Los Angeles right now. I was born and raised in LA. My parents moved to Portland, Oregon. Um, but when my mother sent me down to LA again, she sent me with some like sculptures that she'd had since she was my age. And I have her books over in the corner and <laughs> I'm codependent. And so she helped me pick out all my furniture <laughs> and I like feel, I feel her presence in my place, even when she's not here. Mm. So I think my mom is the thing that helps me feel like home. Love that. Shout out to mom. 
Shout out to mom. <laughs> Eliana, thank you so much, so, so much for spending some time with us, for sharing your stories. And I cannot wait to continue hearing more. Um, how do our lovely listeners continue to follow your journey? Is there a place that we can keep looking for you and hearing your stories? Yes. My website is always the most updated. It's elianapipes.com. And that's also my handle on Instagram, which I rarely use, but might come back to it. Who's to say? <laughs> I know, right? Social media is, oh, there's always a moment of like bringing you back around. I know. <laughs> thank you so much, Eliana. Thank you for being on Moranita. It was a pleasure. Un placer. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful to Eliana for coming on the show today. And I'm grateful to her for letting me originate the role of Julia in Dreamhouse. I hope Dreamhouse becomes a major success and travels throughout the world. It's that good, y'all. But I know Eliana is going to be a huge success. Her talent and commitment is seen in everything she does. And I hope I get the pleasure of working with her again. Nos vemos. Moranita is a production of Sonoro in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card... Right this way. It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is... To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.